Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined this time by Graham Hunter. Now Graham is a journalist, broadcaster, podcaster and an author who has worked with a whole host of top newspapers, magazines and TV channels as well as for two of football's governing bodies, FIFA and UEFA. His expertise on football, in particular Spanish football, is much sought after. Well, that expertise is matched by an infectious love for the beautiful game. He is the author of two superb books, Barca, The Making of the Greatest Team in the World, which was later turned into an acclaimed film, Take the Ball, Pass the Ball, and Spain, the inside story of La Roja's historic treble, telling the remarkable story of the Spanish national team, which won two European Championships and the World Cup between 2008 and 2012. Graham also hosts the hugely successful and popular Big Interview podcast, where he speaks to all of the biggest names in the world of football. And in any introduction of Graham, it would be remiss of me not to mention his first and most enduring football love of all, which is, of course, Aberdeen Football Club. Listen, that's made you happy for the rest of the podcast. Here, I know that. <laughs> well, because your team is imposed so much misery on mine, and because I was kind of hypnotised there by that, I mean, all of the things you said they were true, but I'm not used to listening to it being talked about, and therefore I was kind of, of it felt like being in a sort of swimming pool full of honey. It was a particularly <laughs> nice feeling, and then I was snapped into reality by it. He's going to mention the dandies and. <laughs> That, that was a very nice touch indeed, yeah. Yeah, you have made me happy. Well, I, I can't not mention Aberdeen. And of course, you also have the distinction of being the first Aberdeen fan on the podcast, so you're, so you're making a bit of uh, Aberdeen history as well. Well, we're notoriously shy at coming forward. None of us really are great readers either, so maybe that's what's excluded us up to now. And of course, in the in the course of the podcast, I'm going to chat to you about sort of various books, some of your favourite books, some of, some of your not-so-favourite books. But I did mention you're the author of two very successful books on Barcelona and, and Spain. And interesting, I was just reading just even the, the wee introduction you give yourself on your website where you talk about the there's a different kind of respect between footballers and journalists in Spain to the UK. And, and that kind of comes across in your books where you have that, you have to earn that trust, of course, but you have that access because they trust you to tell their story, but also you don't trust you in their journalistic integrity. Paul, I, I know that, I mean, we've, we've known each other on and off for a very long time. We came together a long, long time ago. And I think I was always a, you know, I'm blessed in that. I'm a very flippant, very toss a coin in the air and just follow the breeze guy. There's no question about that. I mean, I'm not stupid, but I don't apply a lot of strategy to life. I kind of breathe along imagining that whatever I've got in my repertoire will, will get me through. And I'm in Spain because I just believed it would be for me. You know, I'd been to Spain for football, which influenced me. I breathed the air literally as I crossed the border on a train in 1982 from France into Spain, got involved in an altercation rescuing a Spaniard from a drunken racist Englishman with a beer bottle and got arrested falsely and logged back in a train and I was just infected by the idea that, that Spain was it just felt seriously honestly now as soon as we're going to talk about books and imagination and creativity and and the feeling of 
words and romance. Never been abroad before in my life before. I literally crossed France into Spain and it was like crossing into a magic kingdom even though we were on a train and, and it was the old trains where the windows could come down and there was compartments and all that. And I was just smelling a different air and it just felt to me that I was home. You know, there's nothing, there's no Spanish background in my family, but it literally enveloped me, took me over completely. So when um, I fell out with a, a really ugly and mean and vindictive boss in my Fleet Street job and he kicked me out and my wife said to me, look, you've always looked after the family, you've always wanted to do X. And so she said, I propose to you, I, I don't want to go to Spain, but I propose we do. And I came over here because of the things that I, I believed that the sporting press here were dedicated to understanding football, whereas most of us in Britain were brought up to think that the way you cover football in Britain or television or radio forms was as so much more than theatre, sometimes slapstick theatre, sometimes high theatre. But you talked about the personalities and you talked about events, what you and I grew up consuming, even though you grew up watching a, an extraordinary era, era for Celtic, and eventually I did too with Aberdeen. We weren't really encouraged to think about football as a science, to break it down, to explore its art. We were taught to follow the personalities and their declarations. And in Spain, I thought as a journalist, if training is open, I can learn. I can be better. Maybe I'll get bumped out. You know, maybe I'll, maybe the Spanish system will chew me up and spit me out. I didn't care. I didn't even, Paul, really think about it. So when you talked about, you know, earning trust and whatever, initially, I, I know because they've subsequently told me that we're like, who is this odds and sods? Who's this Wurzel Gummidge who's pitched up with? Not a lot of, you know, I had the command of Spanish that Sean Connery has of different accents <laughs> his, his career, yeah. A certain a certain debonair, I don't give a toss, which is what Sean and I share about, like, well, just take us or leave us. And that meant that, you know, in the first few months, nobody understood me. I had no contact. So all I would say is that I've worked really hard to prove my credibility, particularly in terms of trust. And the thing that when a team, Spain or Barcelona, have let me into the dressing room at that point where it's the most sacred or where they've given me a phone number and said, yeah, you can, you know, you can message me now and again or you can call me. That shortcut that we all crave to get to the people that can tell us things that we don't know. That's been hard earned because of A, they, they know that the boundless enthusiasm I've got for the game. They gradually learn that it's not fake and it's not, it, it doesn't make me some sort of Frank Spencer character. And two, I make them laugh. That's been a really key factor in, in succeeding. When you travel with them, when you're, say, at a tournament for seven weeks with them, or when, if you share a hotel, largely you keep out of the way and you try not to be a bad representative of the, of the profession that you and I shared and, and make them think, oh, look, he's just around because he's looking for something. But when you bump into them or when you're working with them behind the scenes and not looking for copy, if you can make them laugh, and there's a feeling of complicity. And if you can travel their hours, so late night flights, back at four, up and out of training again for 10, repeatedly over and over again, they just begin to trust. And the largely the footballers in Spain want to find that the media likes to talk about football the way that they do. And if you do, they are a slightly different breed from what you and I have grown up with in Scotland and England. That's what I hoped I'd find. And, you know, I'm here a long time, so I think I've earned my spurs. But now, retrospectively, I think I know how, and, and it is, truthfully, it is better here. They don't believe, by and large, that people in our profession, storytellers, chroniclers, are there to take advantage of them. They don't believe that they're above us. Their time is precious. They live in a bubble. They have outrageous demands on their time and their opinions. But by and large, they like to talk football. And if you're any good at it, they will. 
I mean, it's interesting you when I was asking you for your book choices, taking you from childhood through to now. And, you know, for somebody, and I'd mentioned with so much passion for football, it is quite interesting that, that none of your books are, are football books that you've chosen. I accept that. And, and your interview, I, there's something that I'm, I'm embarrassed about and it's become more true during the lockdown. I can have too much of certain parts of the football industry. Um, I can't wait to have football again. I can't wait to analyse it. I find interviews a joy, if they go well, a, a real joy. But consuming other people's opinions about football, looking at lists of my favourite 100 players and my favourite goals, more and more I find that a turn-off. And more and more I, I love getting in-depth about what's currently happening, what might happen, trying to learn and speak analytically, if possible. And, and therefore, although I do read football books, and there have been some that I've truly enjoyed, I find reading time a means to either learn something specific that I really want to go after, or I'm a chameleon, Paul. I read a lot of autobiographies, particularly cinema, music, occasionally biographies of those who've excelled in war. It might sound a bit pathetic, but like when I had to write my books, when I had to make take ball, I found reading books about other people's achievement liberates me. So, for example, when I was finding it quite hard to write my second book, the Spain book, my wife gave me a brilliant book about Bowie uh, at Christmas time. I read it, and suddenly, you know, I wasn't in his skin. But there is a chameleon nature. If I'm reading about people who take risks or are successful or come through some form of rejection or adversity, it infuses me in a way that reading football autobiographies don't. That's why I'm with my publishers right now, because they said football books for many years haven't represent the majesty, the beauty, the theatricality, the operatic nature of sport. Football books are very often one, two, three, one, two, three, and then I did, and they're not very well ghosted, and therefore I do read them, but it would be a rare day that one of them, you know, absolutely made it to this list, and, and that's why I didn't mention them. Well, I'm going to take you right back to your childhood for the first of your book choices, and, and that's your, your favourite book from childhood, and there was a few contenders, but you ultimately you plumped for Tolkien's The Hobbit. When you read it as a youngster, now, you know, everybody's everybody's seen everything. Everything's available. Pandora's box is well and truly open. And in those days, I'm like, I'm older than you, but in those days, it wasn't the case. Your imagination was probably more vivid because you weren't stupefied with everybody selling you their imagination on the internet or DVD or streaming. or. And if you read that book at a young age, it's a fantastically constructed adventure because it's got I mean there's there's not a lot of difference between The Hobbit and North by Northwest and it's one of the most classic themes that certainly I'm not highbrow I'm not particularly bright and therefore I don't need huge new complicated themes somebody gets charged with something that's beyond their ken they get put into turmoil it's probably a little bit unjust and can they succeed against the odds that gets reworked over and over and over again. And it's how you paint it. And I suppose The Hobbit is just jam-packed full of things I'd never imagined or heard of. And I think it's also, you know, it's clearly more consumable than The Lord of the Rings, which equally knocked me over when, when I eventually read it. But The Hobbit was partly, partly I read it when I was six, seven, eight. And partly my parents would read it to me, say I was ill 
or something like that. And they were like, okay, we'll read you. Having something read to you is also pretty magical. So I, I think it stands up to this day that if you pick that book up, even in an age where computer effects and blockbuster films almost are kind of asset stripping our imagination, I yeah. still think you could pick up The Hobbit and say, boy, this has got a magical use of words about magical creatures and their situations. And at the end, no spoilers to people who haven't read it, the big rescue, some make it through, some don't. It, it's, again, I admit comparisons, they might sound cheap, but it's the Dirty Dozen, it's Butch and Sundance, there's a climax, you hope against hope something will happen, it kind of does, and not everybody makes it through. So the, the bones of the book are by no means unique, but the telling, the painting is... It's interesting that, that that's quite a young age for you to, to have read a book like that, I think. Obviously, it stayed with you, but I, I quite like the cinematic comparisons you're making, which is quite interesting, because very often when you're talking to someone about books, it's this book reminded me of that book and that book, and I, I like the fact that, and I'm not sure how many people would compare The Hobbit to The Dirty Dozen, for example, or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, but it's, it's interesting how those themes kind of transpose between the two different mediums of film and, and books and in completely at first glance completely different types of books or type you know this fantasy that Tolkien had written and then a film about a, a dozen sort of really I just identify too easily and, and a lot of people will sneer at my choices when a series I watch or a film I watch I'm not a sucker because I know I'm signing up for it each time I do those themes about like if you take Bilbo and you know it's kind of guilty of abuse because you're like, come on, Bilbo, let's go and fight evil and get some robust travelling companions who don't like you and so we'll just set off and, you know, they get beaten up by trolls and caught by spiders and ultimately they're fighting against pure evil and you're like, hold on there, Gandalf. The man was quite happy where he was. What, what are you talking about there? The comparisons I made are about the thing that gets me and it's what storytelling is about time immemorial it's like hold on that person shouldn't be put in this situation can they come out of it that's a shorter way to say it than i did before i think that theme is true to probably if not millions of books hundreds of thousands of books and thousands and thousands of films and that's the job i didn't make that jump when i was seven eight but we were in <laughs> we were in a house where we were allowed to read anything we wanted which um, is a really good, a really good oh man i was so lucky paul yeah because one of the things that always fascinates me is i'm sure authors are always asked where do you get your ideas from and but i was just again just looking up some information on the hobbit before we did this and tolkien had once explained it came out of literally a sentence i think he was at work and he just wrote this sentence which was in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit and out of that he expanded that to first of all the hobbit and then i think the success of that the publishers you must understand it paul because you're an author and maybe it all came easily to you but whether it's a feature or an interview or whether it's you know the books you've had published immediately you know that it's probably not even the idea that's the most difficult part it's the start it's always the start I don't think I knew what you've just told me about in a whole. Don't you find it that, I mean, you can't just sit there and trot out a book, particularly a fiction novel. I think it's because, you know, The Hobbit then, and then out of that came Lord of the Rings, and it's just this massive book that was so successful in this but then you he takes it right back to the very very beginning and it seems you think that's incredible because at one point that's all he had on a page and out of that and and i totally agree with you the idea has to come from somewhere and then there's the one percent inspiration 90 99 perspiration <laughs> but i love just the fact that he takes it back to just that one sentence and you think i agree but don't, don't you see authors saying and i sometimes go back to this when you're stuck say to new authors or first-time authors 
just write, just write something down. It doesn't fully account for the majesty of one sentence leading to whatever it is. So three, four books, if you count, you know, three books in Lord of the Rings plus The Hobbit. That's still an oh my goodness look at how Tolkien constructed a universe from one phrase. But it is magical that however much you're thinking about the project you're writing, when you actually sit down and, well, if you've got, I think if you've got the right ability, it doesn't work for everybody. You sit down and actually type, even if the first sentence needs reworking, or even if you kind of go back after a page, just beginning. It's, it's not as simple as beginning. Once you begin, if there's anything in your fingers and your brain and your mind, as far as I'm concerned, you're already there. The one other thing in terms of your book from childhood, and and this is a, this is almost an appeal to everybody who's listening to the podcast, because you mentioned there was a book where that you'd remembered where there was a gang of kids yeah. and they foiled a, a bad guys <laughs> with with either pepper or sneezing powder. So, but you can't remember the title. So I'm hoping that if we <laughs> we say that, that somebody's going to get. In touch uh, with I, I would <laughs> read that book again if if this appeal <laughs> that you didn't tell me was coming is successful. I would read that book again tonight. Because it's about a little gang of kids whose parents don't know what they are. And they're, it's in London, but it's a London which is not, it's, a, it's very much a London of the 60s. So it's a place where it's not post-war and you could sort of ramble around the, the rubble. But it's still a place where kids and gangs like the Double Deckers oh, could yeah, find, yeah. You will, that's, the, that's the memory it evokes in me. And they have this. In one of their gardens, there's a hut, and they meet in the hut, and there's a hierarchy. And they, although they, although they are children, they kind of behave in an adult society within their gang. And one of them gets into trouble and spots some bad guys who are maybe, I think, spies. They're villains, and one of them mistakenly stumbles upon it, and, and therefore gets taken. And they have to, they work out what's happened, and they have to. It's got themes, this book, that, that were nicked eventually for Home Alone because the group of kids are too smart for the bad guys. And the bad guys are bad, but they're not utterly brutal evil villains in the way that they would be written now. And it was magical about how this group of kids, and there is a there is something about they trick one of them into doing something that makes his face go red with some sort of pepper or powder and therefore he's identifiable to other adults but it was magic and, and for the life of me i went back and i searched the house and i searched the internet and i got mixed up because emil and the detectives were very good was very good and it wasn't that but oh man if you if this sort of lost and found if this lonely hearts column gets me my book <laughs> I'll sponsor the podcast for a year, I promise you. Listen, I'm desperate to find out what it is as well and read it, so (laughs) (laughs) as much for me as for you, so... Uh, Good man yourself, good man yourself. We we shall hope, hope somebody comes up trumps. I'm going to take you forward now to kind of formative years uh, in terms of developing your own kind of reading habits, and again, there was a few books that were contenders, uh, but the book you've chosen is a memoir, and it's The Moon's a Balloon by David Niven. We watched a lot of movies in my house. We weren't allowed to stay up late uh, as youngsters, but we were allowed to watch quite a large amount of TV, and we watched a lot of black and white. We didn't have a colour TV for quite some years, probably until about 74, 75. So we watched a lot of black and white movies, and, and right from the outset, instantly, there was something classic about black and white, and there was something classic about... I was utterly drawn to, immediately, to, to Cary Grant, to James Stewart, to David Niven... I didn't know it at the time, but the, the voice of Shere Khan was George Sanders. And, you know, we would see maybe a Sanders movie, stuff with Peter Laurie, Bogart. 
and my parents would on the LP turntable the most played LP would easily be songs for swinging lovers by Sinatra in his second peak Cult's library was where I did my borrowing and the librarian, although there were supposed to be sections for kids and sections for adults, the librarian was Mrs. Baxter, <clears throat> who was the mother of a girl who was in my class at school. And she was just a little bit more easygoing about like, I think a couple of times I said, I'm taking this book out for my parents or some such thing. But by and large, she turned a blind eye. And I suppose when I read The Moon's a Balloon, I'm guessing I'd be 13, 14. You know, I had two brothers. We were very silly. So we, we played Monty Python records up in the in our loft all the time. When Monty Python's book books came out, we bought them in, immediately and just rolled around the floor, repeating the lines and laughing. And I guess and Spike Milligan's humour all was just completely corpsed me. I mean, corpsed me without exception. And therefore his mad books about his war, even his poetry that he wrote, all of these things were competing with David Niven. But when I read David Niven, I didn't know I was a rascal at that age. I was a pain in the arse. I always took the other path. I always somehow seemed differently. I was picked on by bigger boys and punched because they weren't wholly in the right. But, you know, I was a stroppy, cheeky, different kind of. But I didn't know I was what I would prove to be, which is somebody a rascal who takes chances and does things that you shouldn't and gets away with them. And reading this book, I could hear a bell ringing somewhere deep in my DNA um, because it's a book where I'd seen David Niven quite a lot in movies. I'd been particularly knocked out by the original Pink Panther film, which is um, where he he's the rake. And what the hell is it? Is it George Pepper? There's a, there's a, God, I should know. But it's a brilliant movie in which the, the Pink Panther is a diamond. Anyway, David Niven, in general, was somebody who, and I think he was in a Doris Day movie, Don't Eat the Daisies, that I, I really loved. He, he was a known face, and I was a big devotee of the original Parkinson show, where you saw, you know, Mitchum and, and Wayne and David Niven and Ustinov repeatedly, and watching them and listening to their anecdotes uh, with Parkinson in the early 70s was enough to make me think, when I saw Niven's book, right, I must have that, and You'll know if anybody's read it, it's it's outrageous. You know, he looks like, you know, he's about the shape and size of Charles Hawtrey, but he behaves as if he's six foot four and blindingly handsome. And, you know, from the minute he loses his virginity, age 14 in London to an 18-year-old hooker who takes a shine to him kind of thing, throughout his mad life, his D-Day landings, the loss of his beloved first wife, mucking about with Clark Gable and Barry Moore and... Harry Grant and the hard drinking and the hard screwing around of, you know, the clan around Bogart and playing cricket in Hollywood in the 30s, just the cricket club out there, just everything about the rakish, you know, he's even a bad man. He's a little bit naughty to his second wife, admittedly, but this was like a harder edged version of people I read about in P.G. Woodhouse because I read a lot of uh, my granddad, who I never knew because he died when my dad was one, had left something that my granddad had signed on the inside jacket it was called the smith journalist and my dad had inherited that from his dad who he never knew and i inherited that and woodhouse therefore captured me and woodhouse was always about rakish people who lived who had a club and dressed with spats and had manservants and got into scrapes and woodhouse and scrapes were always kind of jolly david nevin's scrapes were a little bit more risky and rakish and dangerous and i thought yeah that's life man 
even at that age, without knowing what I'd become and even being much less sure of myself then than I became, it was intoxicating to think you can start from not very much and you can behave as if you were immortal, have a great deal of fun, succeed. You know, not, not be a cad by any means, but you can just, what would we call it? You can nick about having fun. To my mind at that age, it was just outrageous. Outrageous. I loved it, man. Because what I like about your first two book choices is you grew up in a household where you're allowed to read anything, which I think is just, it's a great way of just fostering that curiosity of books and nothing's off limits. You can just read and if you enjoy it, you, you take it in. That's great. But then also, still at a very young age to be reading a, a book which I'm guessing would effectively be, obviously it's a memoir with, with lots of subject matter that a lot of parents would maybe think, mm, I'm not sure at 13 you should be reading that. But I think, again, that's when you these books are making such an impression on you. And again, he he lived, uh, he did live an extraordinary life. And you know, I, I think he was one of the few actors at the time who joined up during the Second World War and actually had active service and, you know, took a, almost like a career gap to, to go and, and serve in the army and then come back and he, he played James Bond as well. He was in, as you say, he was in the Pink Panther around the world <clears> in 80 days. And probably, as you say, growing up, when you used to, it was always a Sunday afternoon. I always remember all these great, great <laughs> films were on. It was probably in everybody's house every Sunday afternoon. And it just, it was like almost like part of the furniture for years and years. I think so. And I remember at a young age, if you looked at him, like the words and the deeds didn't really match up to the guy because he was definitely, he had an air of Raffles the Gentleman's Thief about him and he was elegant and he was debonair and his mischief in his eyes and his tone were evident. But by no means would you say he was a knockout. At that young age when you're developing and you're, you're kind of finding your way a little bit, even if it's subconsciously, I, I didn't, well, I didn't quite go off. If he can, I can. But nonetheless... His world and his deeds and cutting a, a swathe through Hollywood, you know, having been born in central London, literally. I was addicted to Bob Hope. I was addicted to Cary Grant, it, both Englishmen, and yet they completely took over Hollywood. I didn't read a Cary Grant autobiography, but I'd have thought that's out of my reach because Cary Grant, the research stage when he's probably the most handsome, elegant man in the world, and I'd have thought <laughs> in Aberdeen in, in the middle 70s, age. 13 or 14, I don't know, yeah, well, I can forget that. David Niven with his little pencil moustache and his sort of wrinkled turtle face, there was an effect on me that was just like, hmm, hmm, or maybe, I wonder. <laughs> I suppose the, so the thing is, it's, it's, uh, it's, as you say, it's not so much that you want to replicate, but it's just to give you that, I think, that sense of anything's possible. Or yes, yes. You can try anything. I totally you, believe I that, what you've said there. I'm wondering at what point you tried to grow a pencil moustache, but... <laughs> There's no stage, even in my, in my sort of George Michael, Andy Ridgely 80s phase. My glory days, I was into looking a little bit like either initially quite mod or ultimately a little bit wham. And so <laughs> I think I wore David Niven's pencil moustache inwardly. There's the best way to say it. I carried right. it with me in my soul. <laughs> <laughs> and I never, and I never reached out for it facially, and probably for, for that the world should feel blessed. The next book that I've asked you to choose, which is a book you'd recommend to anyone, and this is a book that, when I, again, when I'm just looking 
over it. It's certainly a book I, I, I'd love to go and read. And it's Harpo Marx's uh, 1961 autobiography, Harpo Speaks. And what was it about that book in particular that you would want to, to recommend it to everyone? First of all, I didn't know for a long time that this book existed. So I probably didn't read it until in the region of 10 years ago. I'd always found the Marx Brothers, I mean, literally hilarious. Not because of the slapstick, but because I've always valued speed of thought, speed of wit, mad use of vocabulary, which comes out if you think about talking about Monty Python, Spike Milligan, yeah. and there's a direct link to the Marx Brothers. But to find what troopers they were, to find out that you know they're born in Germany, they're brought to the Bronx at a time of hostility towards, like they're, they're about fourth or fifth in the wrong of who New York would accept. And if you down that ladder at that time, life is tough. And each of the brothers is a fascinating study, but because Harpo portrayed himself to be the kind of dopey one, the one that didn't speak, constantly wore a wig, to find out how characterful he was, I soak up people that have lived ridiculous lives. I mean, literally ridiculous. And faulting me is that I don't just fantasize, but I, I believe that however lucky I've been, and I have been enormously lucky in my life, blessed, I kind of go, he stole my life. I, I literally, so the stories about Harpo having to go out and steal Harpo and his inept dad, who was a tailor, and so useless that they had to remake and remend the stuff that people had paid him to do. This outrageously ambitious, but also tough and characterful mother that really bound the whole family together. And, and there's a stage where Harpo is playing piano in a whorehouse and it gets raided and the extraordinary escapades that they get up to with rival acts, cops, when they're broke, how they fight back, how they make their way through vaudeville and then Hollywood. But what kind of man he is. I hadn't known a lot about the Algonquin Club, except that th this hotel hosted a, a table full of bright minds who met to either discuss things or get drunk or play bridge or whatever it might be. And he fitted in, initially felt a little bit daunted by the intellects and achievements of the people in whose presence he was, yet they adored him. And then you get the another thing I've always yearned for, the, the sort of Hamptons life, the, the summer in the East Coast of America and weekends in New York upstate or on an island off you know, Boston or whatever it might be with drinking and quite a lot of partner swapping and croquet. And it's a bygone age, which again, links into Woodhouse and links into David Niven. But to find that Harpo was this spirit guide through it for the reader and to find out that he was an immensely decent man who found love late in life and a family and who began to really enjoy painting. It's hugely entertaining really frank like there's no even though it's with the ghost he doesn't hold anything back you get an absolute feeling not only of truth but of massive depth it tells you stories of a hollywood that's gone but also he finds tremendous happiness he's a good witness to zeppo and chico and, and groucho and and their their various traits it's written in the year after i was born so it's a story of the century before me and i remember growing up I was very young. My gran was from Huntley. My dad had grown up there. And like I said, his dad had died before he knew him. And in my gran's house was 
a beautiful, big, hardbound book. It was called Pageant of the Century. I guess it must have been published in the late 40s or the 50s, and it was a pageant of the 20th century. And we were allowed to gaze at the images of either coronations or great destruction or great politicians all over the world. And I was left with a thirst for what went before me. And Harp was a brilliant witness. It's a funny book. But like Niven, it's a book where you're like, well, how did this guy, how the hell did he manage to do all this? And again, although I read it much, much, much later when I'd already believed, if it's doable, I can do it. And this guy lived like that and did it 10 million billion times better than me. But I feel a familial urge for him. (laughs) What I think is extraordinary is that, and I'm guessing at the time when that book came out, it's almost the first time that people hear his voice in a way, because I think being able to draft this character effectively through mime and through sound, and obviously he's a very talented musician, but never really speak. I think people must have been fascinated to actually hear his voice on the page. And it's interesting that, again, I was just reading that, I think he taught himself to play the harp, which was where his, his name came from. I think he was, a, I think, a really, really top musician, but I just love that right. idea of him creating this whole persona where he doesn't actually speak. So that's what fascinates me about actually reading the book, because then you're, you're really getting to hear his voice. I think the voice is loud and clear and it's a lovely voice. And I think you've said something shrewd that, I mean, I never enunciated it, but it's a story about a guy who put his talent before his ego because it wasn't the the story about the clown who's bitter or anything. So once he created that personality for himself, he never felt trapped. He never felt belittled. And the breakthrough chapters are about when in the company of Dorothy F. Park and all this, all the, the highbrows at Algonquin, I think he initially feels that he may be, he feels he might be initiated as a kind of plaything or as a, as like, um, there's, a, there's a brilliant modern family where the, the, the younger daughter is the bright one and yet she goes to school where everybody else is brighter than her. And, it, and Harper goes into Algonquin thinking, well, I know I've got a mind and I know I'm not my character, but I might be lost here. And he finds that he's their equal and he finds that they treat him as such. And this voice that you talked about tells the story of a guy who didn't go that bastard trap that I put myself in when I first put on that wig and the funny hat and the he, he does a particular face where he blows his cheeks out and rolls his eyes and he, he comes up with a great name for it and these things didn't damage his perception or his ego they made him his they helped he and his brothers make their fortune but he found absolute equanimity with that personality never felt I've got to prove that I'm somebody else off screen he was a guy who found great contentment and he could learn basically any instrument and, and did so at will. Learned painting, learned, it was a brilliant at cards, he had a clever mind. And he was a guy who found peace and, and love and, and happiness. I found it a very complete story because Chico was devoted to chasing women and gambling and Groucho was called Groucho because of the little grouch bag where he kept his money hidden. You know, it wasn't about his temperament. And he was quite driven and quite tight and felt responsibility for it and Zippo was an ordinary guy who kind of lived as a business manager and had talent on stage. So the characters of each brother was were noticeably different. Groucho was a far less fulfilled guy, even though people might say he was the most talented of them all because he he kind of led the led the the mad band on screen and he he became iconic, even more iconic than Harpo. And, and he had this brilliant later television career. But Harpo probably was the most satisfied and complete of the brothers in his life. And you're right, the fact that there's a voice when we didn't know what his voice was like 
It's not outright ghosting. It's with help. It's with guidance. Whether it's true or false, you get a feeling that you're right in the heart of the mind of the guy you never spoke on screen. And I do take your point. I think you're right that it feels refreshing that way because we never heard him. We never really heard him speak, certainly in performance. I also wonder, you mentioned kind of similar to David Niven's book, it was that kind of sense of nothing's impossible, that if you think there's a chance you can do it, you just do it. But also, I wonder as well whether, you know, one of the, the messages you get from that book is, you know, the value of contentment, of happiness, of, of love, all these things that obviously not everybody gets in their life, but th- those things are so important. And, and if, if, you know, if somebody like him got that while being successful at the same time, it's living the dream, as it were. This travels over to my personal appreciation of some parts of football. That's why I'll always rate Messi more highly than Maradona, for example. And that I think that, you know, life for living, it's a thin line. Life for living, you know, as if it's eternal, but you know it's not. And you have to use it well enough that while you're living it as if it's eternal, it's always going to be there. You still live with a consciousness that you have to use it well. And that's a difficult blend. What unites many people I like also living in, in Harpo is that they lived it with a veracity and a, a colour and they devoured parts of life and took risks. I mean, a, a wide variety of risks. Like a biography of Robert Mitchum is also, I mean, Mitchum's life was just, again, did people in that era live in the way they did? Particularly the, the, the greats, because many people tried to live and died. But was it because they experienced a depression, because they were born into utter poverty? Was it because of the, the mass murder of World War II? But so many people that I grew up utterly magnetically drawn to, whether I read their words or not, lived life as if they were like hungry for 16 portions of it every day. And they took gigantic risks and they had this, a disdain for rules, not in terms of being anarchic, stupid and nihilistic and ripping everything down, but they couldn't devour enough of life with things that society didn't necessarily approve of. And I, I gravitated towards that. I believed in it. And yet the, the ones that I liked were the ones that, irrespective of what they did, they came through and they realised that there was a value to life as well as they didn't treat it as disposable, but they treated it as if I want more of it now every day. I want triple portion of what everybody else is ready for every day. The reason I mentioned Messi Maradona is that Messi plays like Peter Pan as if there's no end, as if there's nothing he can't do, but he doesn't treat it as disposable. And for whatever reasons, Maradona, who, who maybe had more of the skill set and, and certainly was stronger physically than Messi, treated it as a disposable talent and treated it with disrespect. His I can do anything became I don't care. And none of the people in this chat that I've talked about reading the books, they all lived life in a way that a lot of people would shy away from. I would induce fear in, but they never treated life as if it was disposable rubbish. And that's what attracts me to these themes that we've talked about. And that's what, ARP was a different story from David Niven, but things that unite them, they're like, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do it again. And nobody can tell me no. And I love that. What I like about, again, the podcast is that I always take people from the positive of a book they'd recommend to anyone to the other side of the coin of a book you couldn't be paid to read again. And I know that you said the kind of, you know, there's not many books that you hate. You did originally mention anything by Shakespeare. I and, meant it. I meant it. I, I was well, very restrained. It's interesting because like you, I would have, at school, we would have got, you know, Shakespeare plays to study and it was just hellish. And 
it was only when my kids were going through high school and there was two or three times when they were studying Shakespeare and it just so happened there would be a performance of the play on either in Glasgow or Edinburgh, so I would go with them. And I always think Shakespeare plays were written to be performed, to be seen, not to be read on the page and studied. And actually, for me, seeing them up on stage, it was a revelation. Suddenly I was enjoying them, where, I, where my memory of being at school and not understanding the language and absolutely hating it. I can now see the, the beauty of it and the genius of it, but only on the stage. I still, well, my, I, he still couldn't pay me to read a script. My, of, my, respect, my respect for what you've said is such that I would try one more time about a performance, maybe. But and my hatred of it is, is pretty deep and pretty passionate. And I, <laughs> There's a light bulb going on. Like, look, I, we, we get taken to performances at school. Every now and again, I'll glance at an Othello or a Hamlet which is on at these live event cinemas where you can tune into a live theatre and whatever. For me, I admit that, you know, because the, the odds are against me here. Shakespeare's been popular for a long time. He's, he's possibly the most famous author ever. But typically of me, I'm like, well, I know better. Because, <laughs> you know, I like Chandler. I like Damon Runyon. Language is fantastic. But it's like, you know, do you like writing on paper? Do you like using it for origami? Do you like putting on a nice jumper? Or do you like crocheting it to me words are for using not for fanning about it and if you strip all the, the language that Shakespeare uses out of the equation see what's the plot there's literally nothing there that hadn't been written or talked about before him or since I don't think there's anything interesting or unusual about Shakespeare's plots they're standard and okay because he comes at a time when the spread of learning when the spread of printed material when the public began to be able to have access to standing pits or ultimately cheap seats, but when the public was able to see the first ever productions of Shakespeare and watch it pissed and shout and boo and whatever and treat it like we treat the pantomime now, sometimes when you set fire to a meadow, fire carries, but it doesn't mean that something special is happening. It doesn't mean that it's fire, it just means that the fire keeps burning. And for my taste, words are too precious to be fannied about with like he does or whoever wrote it. Him and Dick Francis share a secret, don't they? But the truth is, you like, get to the point. That's my, you know, I should apply it to myself here. Get to the point. Stop fannying around. And and that's that's what his works are for me. Just page after page of fannying around. And if you're in a time machine, you know, you'd go back and, sorry for everybody who doesn't even, but you'd shoot Hitler, you'd shoot Thatcher. And the third thing you'd do is you'd take Elmore Leonard back and say, Shakespeare, shaky boy, meet Elmore Leonard. Elmore, teach him how to write. That's worth inventing a time machine for that alone. I all three purposes. Because, you know, I mean, I think there are only so many uh, storylines in the world and everything that's probably been written has been written. It's just a way of how people tell the stories evolve. They're, they're kind of repackaged for the, the ages. I find the experience of live theatre captivating anyway. And Yeah, you, you've, you've, you've put a light bulb over. I understand that. I do. You know, I, I, I buy what you say. I, I hear it. And, and as for Elmer Leonard, the rules that he has, the rules of writing he has should be required reading for everybody who ever wants to take out a laptop or pick up a pen because they're just perfect. He is just a genius. Agreed, and I could definitely, I've got that rules of writing by Elmer and I could do with dipping into them each time I start to write my ESPN column, which I know is too long and just because you have a thought it doesn't need writing necessarily. There was a couple of other books you mentioned, James Herbert's The Rats, which you said terrified you and then 1984, which depressed you. <laughs> He didn't use the exact expression I used about that James Herbert book. 
earlier we talked about, it's not that my parents by any means were ultra, ultra liberal, but they encouraged, the, you know, they pushed classical music upon us and said, listen to this and just see, see what sensations it brings. And the house was jam-packed full of a really wide range of books. They wouldn't have allowed me to read outrageous stuff, age 12, 13, 14, but there were, there were very few rules. And also I picked up a lot of books that my parents read. They would just be recycled to us. And there's a lot of adult themes in general in the books that I read. And I would certainly have read a lot of them at a, an age that felt whether my age and my maturity were quite ready for them or whether the books were actually opening my mind, which is the way books should be. You shouldn't necessarily wait till you're ready to read them. They should be your teachers in some way. But the downside is you pick up a book like this that I thought, yeah, okay, this will be, uh, I didn't read much horror, but boy, it, his skill was put to bad use there. And I, I already wasn't very keen on rodents. And this investing them with sentient power and malevolent will towards us and, and strategy, the fact that they became strategic. I still won't sleep tonight. And therefore, I think your question to me was, you know, wouldn't read again at any price. And, and also, 1984, you know, I've got, I've got a gigantic respect for Orwell, the person, the choices he made and the messages that he was putting out at a time when I think they must have seemed obvious to him, given what he'd witnessed and what he'd lived through. And we haven't heeded his warnings at all, because certainly talking about the nation that you and I grew up in, we, we get stupider by the year partly because the government undermines education at every turn and has done since the 70s. But I found 1984 deeply upsetting and threatening and depressing when I read it. And I knew that there were themes there that, that were real and that, that spoke to the situation I was looking at around me in Britain then. And, you know, it worried me, it inspired me to take certain positions in life and to, to say certain things. But as a piece of literature, what happens and where people show bravery or not, where people show loyalty or not, where, you know, it's the, it's the precise opposite of what I talked about in terms of The Hobbit and North by Northwest. A little man finds himself in a situation that he shouldn't be in. Can he make it out? Well, George's answer is no, he can't. That runs contrary to everything I believe in and, and wish for. So his messages weren't lost on me, but I hated them passionately. And therefore, I wouldn't read it again. Why, why, why read it again when for years we've been living it? Do you know, it's one of the things that I, for, for a lot of, a, a number of years now, and it goes back to the Iraq war and, and George Bush's war and terror, and ever since then, which I've always said is classic, just Orwellian speak, I just keep telling people you need to read this, because although he was talking about maybe the Soviet Union and how he saw that evolving, as you say, it's happening right now, it's happening in the world, what he said then it's happening before our eyes here in the United States, and it's, you know, it's such an important book, and... I have gone back to it a few times, actually, and, you know, I, I agree with you in terms of the themes are, are you know, very strong, but I, I just love it as a book. Yeah, no, I understand that. I, I would never be derogatory about it. I, I was responding to the, the direction of the question, and it, I understand it is, is a reference book, and, you know, there are, I suppose I broke a rule in your podcast in that you're right, there are, for those who can't see what's going on, particularly the, those who are emerging in their life, they should have it, they should use it as an is A to Z guide of, not just totalitarianism, but oppression. But, you know, I think you need to be, you need to be lobotomized to live in our society. And not, effectively, if you've got a brain, you shouldn't need to be nightly for because it's all out there. And if you're not noticing, then what opium pipe are you sucking on, metaphorically? 
So it was interesting as well, because I think you're the first person to approach that question, because most times people just look at it as a book that they hated, so they wouldn't read again. So I, I, it was interesting that your perspective on it was books that you wouldn't or you couldn't be paid to read again, but for different reasons other than the fact you didn't enjoy them. Because oh, they God. Have oh, yeah. My respect for it was, you know, I knew it was a masterwork when I was reading it. And I read it once it was part of a school project, and I read it, but I'd read it by that stage independently. And it made me angry then, and subsequently the themes have scared me because no matter that the warning signs were there, we've let it happen. And I don't want that we should become like the central characters, hopeless and beaten. You know, right now and for some years, that's, that's unfortunately the direction we're heading in. We'll try and lighten up a wee bit with some, with some crime books now. With, uh, we're on to the, right, let's the last... Go, let's, go on the, let's go on the theft and killing, my don't we? We're on to <laughs> the, the last question, which is always the either the last book you've read or the book you're currently reading. And I know you said you, you read quite a lot of crime books, but these, uh, it's a series of books, Mick Heron, I think yeah. the main character, Jackson Lamb. It's the, yeah. the Horses series. I hadn't actually heard of it, but again, doing some research on it, like like all the best crime books, and I think he's kind of obviously tapped into. A, he's got a good character and a good series of books, and I think there's about eight or nine of them now in the series. I have to be honest about myself that it links straight out of 1984, in that the world is so complicated, and it makes me so angry that I need some of my literature to have resolution, and that largely is what the main body of crime fiction is all about. Because in some instances you get realism breaking in where a hero fails or a hero dies. But there's no doubt that crime fiction is an opiate. And it's like, oh, look, this has happened and somebody can detect it and solve it. And that wasn't the case with, say, Chandler, for example, because the private eye would get slugged, would get tricked and repeat the dose the next book again. But I think there's a lot of, you know, I think the young people talk about shout-out and I, I need to give the shout-out to Rankin, the Rebus author, Malcolm Mackay. Uh, a Lewis man who, who writes about Glasgow crime. I think there's been brilliance in the use of words and brilliance in the use of themes. And your point about how many stories haven't been written by now, well, none or few. But how do you use the words? What pictures do you paint? What characters do you invent? What happens to them? In what order does it happen? And also, how do you trick the reader? Which of them is or isn't a, a reliable narrator? Is the author the narrator? Is, is the character the first person speaker? I, I'd like to think that I'm moderately literate but I find myself reading a book and I'll have, I'll have to stop and check and say is this first person or third person because I'm totally susceptible to the magic that they weave so having read all my way through all the Dashiell Hammett and Runyon and Chandler and I mentioned who else there I mentioned Elmer Leonard we mentioned I discovered Richard Stark and Ross Thomas Lawrence Block long after they became famous long after some of them died and poor old Michael Dibton died really young as far as I'm concerned all I'd say about Mick Heron is that he fits the category of this discussion in that there's nothing new about spies. There's nothing new about them being based in London. But his cast of characters are oddballs. They're misfits. The dialogue that they share, what they do and don't know about each other, what the narrator does and doesn't tell the reader, where you do and don't have to use your brain rather than just um, follow what's being written. These things are hugely entertaining. There's always a resolution of sorts. You know, it's not rocket science that if you start, if your life is, if you're a reader and your life is tough or you want to switch off or you want to have one chapter before you sleep or six, or if you want to, which I often do, I devour a book like somebody's got a, you know, a whiskey habit. It gives you that thrill, that satisfaction of no matter what's going on around you, 
life is resolvable. You can power your way through and somebody will stride to the rescue. That's the opiate that we all get with these types of drugs. And I'm certain that you'll have people on here. I'm certain you'll have been addicted to a lot more high literature and you'll have people on the series who talk about higher themes than me. But I'm not a highbrow guy and I know my weaknesses. And I think that Jackson Lamb and his team of slow horses are kind of painted there as either misfits or losers, but they have things that make them buoyant and there's wit and he's a clever storyteller. And those are the elements I seek out, Paul, when I'm when I'm buying a book. I had a conversation with somebody actually in terms of crime books recently and, you know, that idea of, you know, there's only so many plot lines, there's only so many crimes. The key to successful, and I'm guessing with the McKerran books, it's the characters because... As you say, everything's going to be resolved up to a point. But if you if you like the characters, if you believe in them and you engage in them, you're going to stick with that book and the next one and the next one because the guy, in this case, McHeron, is his skill is, is in creating a character that you engage in. I think, well, I suppose for every writer, that's what you're looking for because that's the, I suppose that's the key to success. I think so. And I think this is where there's more variance because I don't fully think that every book that's great fun or rewarding has to have a plot structure which is dramatically technical. And if you're honest, a lot of Leonard's stuff isn't highly constructed. And a director of films who I, I don't enjoy Hitchcock because of his, what I always found to be his misogyny and his, his lack of regard for scenery or that everything was about the camera. And I thought he was a bully of woman with the camera and on the set. And But, but his magic is undeniable. And he didn't really care too much for plot, but it's what he did to his characters. There's not an infinite variety there, but there's, compared to plot lines, what kind of character? It's like a spinning wheel with 20 numbers on it. How many variations of those numbers are there when you spin them? Well, probably billions. And if you've got characters who begin as unusually drawn they have peccadillos which are not normal and you make your soup full of lots of different ingredients that don't usually go together and it's still soup and you still have to use a spoon probably but it gives you a taste that's slightly different and you might go back for more of it and I think that's what these types of novels certainly achieve it's what Mick Heron's done really skillfully there's a freshness there's a wit each of them has things that mark them out as certainly not society norms and not norms within the fictional society he's created. A distant cousin might be Le Carre's style of drawing of people and bleak references to what's going on, but it's far more colourful, far more pacey, far more punchy, a lot more dialogue-based. Also, his central character. I, I don't know if Ian Rankin's read it, because Jackson Lamb is not Rebus, but again, they would recognise each other in the pub if they saw each other. I think that going outside the norm is very refreshing. Interesting when you mention that, because I started reading a, a series of crime books by a, a woman called Dana Stabenow, and they're, they're set in Alaska, and it's a bleak wilderness. And again, you know, there's probably been other private investigator novels written over the years, but it's just that the character, the setting, and she's written about 21 of them, and I'm just ploughing my way through the series. They're brilliant. They're really, really great books. And again, it's just her, her skill as a writer. Interestingly as well, in terms of the, the Mick Heron books with Jackson Lamb, Gary Oldman apparently is down to, they're going to, they're filming a TV series of it, I think for Apple TV, and Gary Oldman's going to be playing Jackson Lamb. If I look back at when I was reading 
um, the Spencer novels by Robert B. Parker in the early 80s and devouring them. And he was played, I think, by, I'm bluffing here, Robert Ulrich or somebody. That didn't work for me. When I watched the various people who played Rebus, that hasn't worked for me. Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch is a very successful television programme, but the guy who's playing it is just wrong. Therefore, Oldman's skill is such that probably he can produce a version of Datsun Lamb that whether it instantly meshes with my imagination or not should be irrelevant because can you carry the character as painted by the author is number one. And then really crucially, all you, you can in casting and then in acting, when you compromise, you know, you, again, you're an author of fiction. You've got a canvas that's, that's not endless because by the actual publishing definitions, you don't want a book that's, you know, the size of, God, I don't know, that could keep a door open. You want to bring it home in about 360, 400 pages, but there's a, a huge number of words via which you can draw out these characters and their fate and have some fun. But in television, there isn't. So when they cast yeah. around Jackson Lamb and when they get Roddy Ho and when they get River and when they get Min and, and so on and so forth, they have to get each of those, not just right, because in the book, because you're in control of the other characters, you can make sure that they're not dwarfed by this brilliant central character around whom everybody must revolve. In acting terms, you've got far less control. How's the script editing to bring the script tight? How's the delivery? How are the actors physically in terms of what's the chemistry? That's a much, much more difficult process. So you're right, I'll watch it. And Oldman is, you know, he's he's the height of his craft. So I'm hopeful but the adaptation and the casting and the chemistry between the people, not just the actors, people, that's going to be a really difficult mix. But if they nail it, somebody's going to make a fortune. Well, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll make sure I read a couple of the books first before, the, before I watch the TV series. Sadly, Graham, we are coming to the end of this podcast. It's been a real joy uh, sitting and talking to you uh, about football and about books. I was very, very, very honoured and, and to be frank, a bit surprised to be asked. I don't listen to, I don't get a lot of enjoyment out of podcasts. There are a handful I do, but I listen to a lot of podcasts whereby I'm like, that's not the way you should do it. I'm not enjoying this and I switch off. And you've knocked me out with your research and with your blending of the love we both share for football, but also books. And it's been a generous amount of time. And also, rather than interviewing, it's been fun to be asked questions, so I can only say thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.